So Money episode 1140, the best of 2020 discussions about money and race. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. It is countdown to the new year, continuing our trip down memory lane this week with some of the top downloaded shows of the year. Do you know we produced nearly 160 episodes this year? Can you believe it? Last week, we heard some of my personal favorite conversations with Dan Price, founder of Gravity Payments, who managed to avoid laying off his entire staff in the pandemic, thanks to a simple strategy. And we dedicated a show last week to the biggest discussions around real estate on the podcast, looking at whether it's a smart time to buy or sell or stay put and the trends that we might see in 2021. And if I'm talking a little weird, it's because I'm recording this after a root canal. Had a root canal earlier today. Nothing says 2020 like getting a root canal, right? Uh, So today I wanted to dedicate an episode to some of the important conversations we had earlier in the year related to the racial wealth gap, race, racism, and money. As you know, the summer was a tumultuous and pivotal time for race relations in our country. Um, In the aftermath of the police killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and way too many other individuals here on So Many, I chose to dedicate the entire month of June to learning and unlearning about what it means to be Black in America and how that affects one's ability to achieve something that I think we talk about a lot, but we don't really understand that it's not the same for everyone, financial freedom. I've dedicated a whole album to this, to that month's worth of interviews. You can find it on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's called Black Wealth Matters. Coming up in this episode, excerpts from my conversation with Mary Couple and financial educators Talit and Ty McNeely, sharing the conversations they're having with their kids regarding money and race. Yami Rose, the founder of Of Color and why we need to rethink our language when it comes to talking about the racial wealth gap. But first, an excerpt with the queen, Queen Latifah. She graced so money as one of my first guests for our Black Wealth Matters series. Queen made her first big splash onto the music scene when she was just 19. And it was when she released her hit rap single, Ladies First. And then for the next three decades, the Newark, New Jersey native would go on to build a multifaceted and dynamic career as a musician, an actress, a producer, a philanthropist, blazing a trail for other female artists of color. Now, in our conversation, Queen shares some of the financial lessons experienced while growing up and building her business. Take a listen. Your relationship with money, what does wealth mean to you as your career has changed or evolved over time? I, I'm just curious. I know you told Forbes that, you know, checks will come, but you need to focus on work that is um, worth it, meaning that it's worth the time. So when you think about your personal wealth, how would you define that? What, do you, what is the pursuit Oh my God, that is such a big question. Yes, and we have 60 seconds. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) um, I think wealth number one starts with, uh, for me, uh, my idea of what family and friends are. So my wealth is is emotional wealth and, and family wealth is important to me in that sense. 
um, financial wealth then springs from that. What can I do to in, in, enhance the lives of my family, my friends? Um, and, you know, I think it's important to get to, to for young people to receive an, an education about how finance works. I didn't for, for my family, it was about uh, my mom. Op- I remember my bank book and my mom opening a savings account for my brother and I as kids. And we got to put a little bit in that bank book and look at what was in our savings account. And then you grow up and you realize, wait, that's not the account that we should have had this money in. You know, we should have had it in a different account that was earning interest. So we should have maybe been investing, but we didn't know. And so I think financial liter- literacy is really important. Um, for creating black wealth. Um, I think for us to understand the power of our dollar and to make sure companies respect our spending and respect our dollar and reinvest in us is very important as well because that way the money keeps going around. And I think, um, uh, you know, just kind of having a plan in terms of what your goals are and what you would like to accomplish you know, I feel like some of the greed that we see and, and the reason we can't spread the wealth out a bit is because there's no out for a lot of the, the people who are making a lot of money. There's no enough. There's no goal. The goal is to keep making money and making money. But that's like a hamster on a wheel. You know what I mean? There has to be some end game that you say, okay, what do I need to, to make sure my family is good, to make, make sure I'm good, um, that, that my community's good, or the things that I want to invest in in life, or you know, I, can, I can always support this organization or that. If those are the goals that you have for your life, then those are the things that you can work towards. And then you say, okay, I'm, at this age, I wanna kinda just hang out and, and not have to work. Well, then now you got a goal. You got something to work towards. But if you just like working to work, I'm not with that. You know what I mean? Um, that's just me. I'm only speaking for myself, but I, I don't want to work just to work. And, you know, I want to I want my work to be worth it. Yes, because I'm, I'm putting my life's energy into this. And I want the time that I spend away from my family and my friends to be worth it. I want to be doing a job that fulfills me, makes me feel happy that even when the hours are long and I'm exhausted, I leave there like, yeah, that was a good day's work. You know what I mean? And and I like that feeling, you know, so I think it's important for people to, to make sure they're in careers or they're going for careers or creating careers that they feel good about, you know, that, that are worth the time that they are, are, are spending. So they're not wearing it like this, you know, they're wearing it like this, you know, um, those are just a few, just a few of the things. And, and you gotta kind of watch the money. Unfortunately, as I started making money at a young age, what was your first job? What was your first job? Well, my first job was at Burger King at 15. Um, I made minimum wage, (laughs) Um, but I was excited to see that first check. My first check was for like $87 and some change. And it meant that I got to like spend some money, but also give my mom some money, contribute to the household. You know, it was cool. 15 is great for a first job. Sure. It's a lot of burgers. You know, (laughs) and I was the one flipping them. I wasn't on the register. I was flipping burgers. So my second job was at a, a record store called The Wiz and I was selling my own record like it was vinyl at that time. And I was seven years old. My first single came out 
and people would come in the store and ask for my record. And it was like, you know, that's me, right? It would be funny, you know? And they're like, huh, this is you? And I'm like, yeah, you want me to sign it for you? It was kind of a joke, I'm 17, you know? And then I started college at uh, BMCC, Borough Manhattan Community College. And then I left school. I left because I was like, this record is, these records are starting to play on the radio and I'm starting to get shows offers and I need to really focus my attention on this career, this rap career, and I'm gonna put everything I have into it. So I had a conversation with my mom. I said, mom, mom I wanna take a year off from college and I'm gonna put 100% into this career, this rap thing. And if it doesn't work, I promise you, I'll go back to school. That must have been a, was that a tough conversation? Because a lot of parents want to see their kids just stick with college. They're not as risk, you know, taking as, as the, as their children may be. Well, I don't, it was not as tough a conversation uh, because my mother knew me, you know, my mother knows her kids and she's always seen, she's watched this develop in me. She introduced me to the DJ who would become my producer, as a matter of fact, because my mother was a, a high school teacher um, and a class advisor show. So when they had like fundraisers, she hired the DJs for the party, you know, and, and that DJ went on to be my first producer. And so I think my mother was just in touch with the pulse of, of the youth and what was going on. And she encouraged and supported, you know, the youth and my partner, Shaquem, uh, she, she, he was one of her students as well. So she got what was happening. She saw this thing happening, probably the way rock and roll happened, you know, in her day or folk music or, you know, the Beatles or, you know, uh, the Jacksons or something, you know, she, she, she saw what was happening. And so she agreed. She said, okay, you know, I'll let you get this year off, but you know, you had to go to college in my house or work. You weren't just going to hang out. There was no, yeah. no chilling, you know, we were either going to school, we're working, we're doing something. So, um, and I took that year off and I, and I never looked back, actually. Um, everything became a success. We opened up our own management company. We managed some of the top gold and platinum acts of our time. Um, and my mother was there every step of the way with that, you know, and she was the one who actually opened up uh, my first uh, account with Merrill Lynch. She, she opened up accounts for my partner and I both and, and, and was like, oh, no, we need to make sure your money is over here. So, <laughs> again, yes. she she helped us out. Queen Latifah's experience in those early days wasn't always positive. She goes on to discuss how her first accountant defrauded her. He had been writing checks without her approval. And then one day she discovered she had zero dollars left in her bank account. You'll have to go back and listen to the full conversation to hear her take on that experience, as well as her other ideas on how we can promote more equality in the workplace and close the racial wealth gap. Next, I wanted to learn how we should be teaching young kids about race and money. My guests, Tala and Ty McNeely, are the creators of Money Talks, the ultimate couple's guide to communicating about money. They are also parents to three children, and here's what they said they're practicing at home. We have raw and open and honest conversations with our children. As of the recent events that have been going around, 
um, in regards to George Floyd's death, we actually sat down at our dinner table and had a very in-depth conversation with our kids, so much to the point where we actually had to reenact what happened. And we did this for various reasons. Our oldest is 10, our youngest is six, and we have one boy, two girls, and we actually had our son put his hands behind his back, and we actually had him lay on the ground. And of course, I did not put my knee in his neck, but I asked him, could he, by him laying there with his arms back, can you try to get up? Can you get up? Can you defend yourself? He said, no, mom, I can't. I said, imagine if someone was on your neck, two other people, one was on your torso, one was towards the legs. Could you get up even then? No, I can't. I said, what else do you think may happen? I can't breathe. And then we had our, our two little girls um, actually stand on the opposite side of the table. And um, we actually had them verbally say, what would you say if you were to see somebody like that on the ground, a black male on the ground, anybody for that matter. But in this case, we were um, explaining to them what happened with George Floyd, who was, who was an, who was an African-American male. And they started screaming and yelling and saying, get off of him. He can't breathe. He can't breathe. And to see your children's eyes, um, to see that type of, uh, real life story. Like this is not something that they read in a book that was false. This is a real life um, enactment to see your children, to see this through their eyes was very heartbreaking um, to, to have to even have this conversation with them. Um, but we did that for numerous reasons to show them the reality of what's really happening and to also explain um, you're African-American, your dad is African-American and your mom is African-American. And the truth of the matter is there will be some times where you may be treated differently. Right. And so we also use that same conversation to teach them and show them how to still love others, even when they treat you wrong. So we're not telling our kids to be mean to others. We're not um, teaching them to be racist towards others. We're teaching them to love others and to pray for them. And then we also talk about the power um, of your dollar. And so we explain to our children, even when we paid off the mortgage, as my husband said, they went to the bank with us. They got to experience that with us. And we did that on purpose to show them, hey, if mom and dad can do it, they look like me. I can do it too, if not better. And so we're having these conversations with them um, about how they need to be forward thinking, how we need to be talking about more investing. Even now we're having the conversations with with them of building their own businesses. So we're asking them questions. What are some things or some interests that you have? Um, and so we're trying to teach them the power of wealth and even the more importance of it by being in, in a black household. Representation is so important when you grow up, not just being told you can do it, but actually seeing someone who looks like you who is doing it. That's a lot more uh, realistic yeah. and motivational. Along those lines, what are, what are some other examples and other types of modeling that you think are imperative for your community to witness because maybe they didn't get that growing up. And because of that, they feel like they either can't do it or the system is, is set up for failure. Um, well, one, one of the uh, glaring, uh, unfortunately, uh, stats is that uh, the wealth gap between African-American households and Caucasian households, what you just read something today, was it one? Yeah. Penny? So according to a study that just came out from Northwestern University, uh, black families, have one penny for every dollar that white families have as far as wealth goes. Oh and so it's important for us to be examples, not only of debt freedom, but wealth accumulation. Mm -hmm. And I think that the narrative that's being destroyed by shows like this one and shows like ours is that wealth is absolutely attainable. There are some things that you can do that are in your uh, level of acumen that you can do to build wealth, not only for yourself, but that you can be an example to your kids to do the same. For us, one of the big tenets of the work that we do is 
we don't just want to create a strong legacy for the McNeely household, but we want to create strong legacies in every household that follows, subscribes to his and her money and the various platforms. Our goal is to bring about generational change one household at a time. And so when we talk about the ways that we invest in the stock market, when we talk about the ways that we are going to invest in entrepreneurship and invest in real estate, we're doing it in a way so that you can understand, find yourself in it, find your place in that narrative and create, remix it to fit your family and your family's goals so that now not just the McNeely household is changing, but the Johnson household, the Tarabi household, the the Black household, the the Martin household, whoever, whatever household is listening, they're being inspired to do something different because you you kind of alluded to it earlier. You said about systems being set up to fail, unfortunately, and and. and the truth is that the system is set up for a lot of us to fail. Um, but fortunately, there are some really good conversations happening as we speak to try to change the narrative. But the systems have been there for a very long time. One of the big things, and you mentioned the power of real estate, is that that was one of the biggest drivers in this study that I just mentioned as to the disparity in the gap between races. You got to understand, you got to go way back to World War II. When those soldiers came home from fighting, they were promised certain things, one of which was the Montgomery GI Bill that would be a tool for them to become homeowners. And historically and factually speaking, the white soldiers that came home received those grants, received those homes, and the African-Americans, the black soldiers that came back were denied. Not only that, but there was rhetoric created by insurance companies back then that made it seem like the African-American race from a physiological standpoint was inferior and undeserving of being insured. And so a lot of African-Americans could not get life insurance. And if they did, they were charged astronomical premiums for very menial um, outputs. And so you have two of the biggest drivers of wealth of that generation, equity and homes and life insurance policies that African-Americans were blocked out of having. And if you listen to us, we talk a lot about home ownership and we talk a lot about the importance of life insurance because those are things that are attainable and those are things that were withheld from us for so many generations and it's something that is a big part of what you can do at your level to build wealth so those are the types of conversations and examples that we're trying to leave you both are so transparent about how you've built wealth and how you've paid down debt what are some systemic roadblocks that you jumped over or had to struggle against as you were establishing wealth? Well, number one was literacy. I just, mm-hmm. just didn't know, uh, di- didn't have the, the access to just knowledge around it. Um, in the African-American context, um, we are, for better or for worse, when you're a child, you, you there are phrases out there like a child needs to stay in a child's place. And so parents don't necessarily have, quote unquote, adult conversations with their children uh, for better or for worse. So a lot of times we showed up into adulthood and we were kind of expected to figure this money thing out because, like you mentioned, the school system is not teaching us anything about money. And for most of us, our parents weren't sitting us down saying, this is how you invest. This is why you should stay out of debt. This is how you keep your credit clean. This is how you... 
become a homeowner. We didn't have those conversations. So we just became 22 year old college graduates with jobs and incomes. And we were just told go. And so for us, the biggest one of the biggest ones was to figure out how does money work? What is investing? What are the different ways? Because there's lots of different ways to invest. But if you don't find the best style that fits you and your goals, then you can really, really mess it up. Why is it important to stay away from debt? What's a payday loan? Why is that a bad thing? Um, why do people uh, go and take student loans at higher rates than others? Why not just pay my way through school? You know, these are things that weren't taught to us directly. These were things that we had to figure out. My wife figured it out pretty quickly. I've, it took me a little longer and uh, it kind of held us back a little bit. But that was the first obstacle was to figure out exactly how the money game works, because it's 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 rules to this. Farnoosh, as you know very well, there are rules to this game. And if you don't know the rules, you're going to end up losing and you don't you don't even know that you're in the game. Our conversation continues with the McNeely's talking about why personal finance is political and what we need to know to understand the history of the racial wealth gap. You can continue listening to our conversation in episode 1057 on So Money or in the Black Wealth Matters album. And to learn more about the McNeelys, check out hisandhermoney.com. And speaking of the racial wealth gap, maybe that's not the right term to describe the massive wealth inequality in our country. Well, that is something my guest, Yamie Rose, discussed when he joined the podcast this summer. Yami is an entrepreneur. He is the founder of Of Color. It's a digital financial wellness platform that focuses on providing content and banking tools built around how people of color save, spend, and build their legacies differently. He speaks candidly here about why we may want to rethink the expression racial wealth gap and how for him, it was different being black in Jamaica versus here in the United States. Some context uh, first on my experience. So I, I moved here from Jamaica 20 years ago. And um, like, like many people from the Caribbean, I came here from a majority black country. I, I thought I was studied in what overt racism looks like. You know, somebody calls you the N-word, but really blind to the, to the way more dangerous outcomes of structural and really unyielding racial bias, especially in the American context. You know, race is more tied to money and class in Jamaica. And the lighter you are, the wealthier perceived to be, and this has its roots in colonialism, but also, you know, we were able to see black leaders at every level of society in every field. So it was not really until living here and starting a family here and trying to raise two little beautiful black girls that I really see what it means to have so much determined by the color of your skin from birth. If you are poor in Jamaica, you can still, you can rent a suit and you can momentarily exist in another context, but you can't really take a break from being black in America. So you constantly see what people who People who buy into this concept of whiteness uh, feel you are because black does not pass scientific muster. There's no genetic test for blackness. It's a social construct. And that can cause some real PTSD to, to grow up and to always, always feel in, in ever so subtle ways that you're an other and to see these systems and institutions around you reinforce that otherness. It, it, it's crushing and you never get to escape that. So. I owe a real debt to all of the African-American descendants of slaves that paved the way for me. So my career specifically, you know, in a weird way, I was accepted more precisely because I was perceived to be a, a quote unquote different kind of black American. You know, you're, you're one of the good ones. You went to an Ivy League school. You spoke with an accent. You have what they call executive presence. 
But the, the flip side of that is that there's always another black person who's not advancing because, you know, there may be only so much room at the top for people of color. My advice would be don't let the game be played on their terms. Bring your whole self to work because, you know, when you do that, that's when you really progress in terms of being able to offer true value and don't be afraid to speak up and don't be afraid to call certain things out if you see things that are wrong. But in some, I guess overall, I would say that a lot of what I personally encountered was regular people trying to eke out and hold on to some kind of economic advantage in what really amounted to a tournament-like system. So there was definitely racial bias along the way, but also a lot of capitalism just doing what it does. Well, you're the first to say that words matter. You've written about this extensively. I really appreciated what you wrote uh, last year, just this idea of how you know some words are just inadequate in this movement. When we talk about, for example, the racial wealth gap, you say that that is uninspiring. It doesn't really instigate change. What is a better term and why, first of all, do you find it problematic? And, and then what would you prefer to call it? Yeah, so I think in 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 that um, article in Black Enterprise, it was a little bit tongue in cheek, but um, also very very serious in that you are you're dealing with a very serious matter. And I think I brought up the example of the Guardian changing how they you know talked about climate change and they they, they framed it as the, the climate crisis. So I'm a I'm a PhD dropout and in communications and studied for a long time how ideas are spread and shared and you know it's it's it, that always struck me as just not enough to, you know talking about just the racial wealth gap and I think I call it something like the postulant cavity of economic apartheid because that's where we are we are we are in essentially an economic apartheid you know I've I've had a lot of people ask me my perspective over the last few weeks um, about what's happening in America and, and, and many have lamented with sadness that you know America's lost her way and and I offer a quick correction and an observation this this is her way right the the founding documents of this country were clear in defining my political value as three-fifths of that of free whites so the romanticized version of immigration I'm, I'm an immigrant is kind of misremembered as give me your tired your poor your huddled masses yearning to be free but from the 19 from the 1790 naturalization act onwards you know that was open to free whites um, so America was never really built for equality, much less equity. And, you know, mo most are surprised to learn that I'm actually more uncomfortable when people are not freaking out about justice and economic apartheid because the status quo is, is horrible for people of color every day. What is your opinion on something like reparations? You talked in your article about how income is really important and, and there are some solutions to providing what might be you could call it reparations. Others might just call it like leveling the playing field. What do you think about giving all black individuals more income? And then what are some other ways to sort of rectify the, all the wrong that has happened that, that the country has inflicted upon this, this community? I think the first step is recognizing it is what it is, which is a breach of contract, right? So it, it, there was essentially a breach of the constitutional contract with, with black Americans. And I think first going there and Ta-Nehisi Coates with his great essay, The Case for Reparations, went a long way in allowing us to have this conversation with our word in polite company. And let's make no mistake, we started along this path after the civil rights movement, after the Civil Rights Act. 
was signed. We had about almost 20 years of public policies that saw color, that were saying, okay, people of color in this country were wronged. And it was, it, it, it had government support and legal support. I mean, you're talking about FHA laws that is discriminated against black individuals. You're talking about the GI Bill, essentially explicit economic advantage that was provided to um, white Americans that left people of color behind. And that ultimately created a strong white middle class and relegated people of color to an underclass. Um, so I think first, you know, there's a, I talk about the three P's in terms of what we, we need to, to really tackle this. And there, you know, people is one of the P's, right? So you need people to, to first recognize that something wrong happened in this country and be able to recognize it and say, okay, we're not just comfortable enough with saying, okay, let's stop doing that. But let's also in contractual law, there's a remedy, right? So we need a remedy for that. And, you know, people talk about reparations now as that remedy, and that can take many forms. It doesn't have to be helicopter money. It doesn't have to be money falling from the sky. It can be in terms of economic provision of economic opportunity. It could be in terms of social program. The other two P's there are policy and the purse, right? So on the policy side, I think Americans fight against big government all the time, which is just code for entitlement programs that focus on inequity, as opposed to ineffective government that works to create a better society. But you no, know, the gaps between the 1% and the 99% are so large and we're so thirsty that we don't have the will to see effective policy play out. So after the civil rights movement, Reagan started to dismantle that. So racist policy got us here and we need equity focused policy to make things right. And the policies that govern our interactions in certain spaces can go a long way. So then there's the other P, which is the purse, right? So again, we talked about a breach in the contract and we need uh, corporations, which we're starting to see now, come in and say, well, hey, you know, we have a responsibility in society to make sure that we, if we benefited in some way from the racial wealth gap, let's, let's work to make that right. And you're starting to see a little bit of that now, and hopefully it's a little bit more than just a, a moment in time. So just, you know, I've now started calling it, I've tried to remember to call it the wealth chasm, not the wealth gap, the nightmare that is the wealth gap. I don't know. We just have to create, I think, a way more severe description of what we're actually talking about because it is severe. Gap is like mind the gap, right? You can learn more about Yami at his company of color at ofcolor.com. I hope you'll stay tuned for Wednesday's show. It's a review of some of the best episodes where we discuss money and the mind, how making healthy money decisions has less to do with math, but more to do with how we think and behave. Until then, thanks for joining. And I hope your day is so money 